I'm Lindsay Wallstrom Edwards. I am the partnership lead for Sano Genetics. At Sano, we're on a mission to accelerate the transition to personalized medicine. We do that by putting participants at the heart of research and making science more accessible by facilitating at-home genetic testing, educational materials, and all within a privacy-first approach where individuals own their own health information and can make informed decisions. We work to help accelerate recruitment and for precision medicine studies, but also help to put together virtual biobanks when we think there might be a genetic linkage somewhere. We want to see what those genes might be and might be associated with health conditions. Del Smith. Good to see everyone here. I am the co-founder and CEO of Acclinate. We work to improve health equity by enabling inclusive research. And we do that by helping pharmaceutical companies and healthcare organizations ensure that they adequately access and engage communities of color. As a result of that, we build trust and we're able to know how to present the right type of opportunities to take part in research to our communities of color. And the end result of all that is more inclusive research pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining. Hello, everyone. My name is Ebony Scott, and I'm the Director of Health Equity for both Lupus Research Alliance and Lupus Therapeutics. Our main mission is really to advance lupus research and ultimately find a cure. In my role, I'm really taking an intentional approach in trying to engage underrepresented minorities in lupus research, as we know. Um, our communities of color have the highest prevalence rates of lupus. So with Lupus Research Alliance, where we focus on patient advocacy and engagement, we combine with Lupus Therapeutics, which really focuses on all things clinical trials. So I'm excited to be a part of this panel and looking forward to this discussion today. Thank you so much, Ebony. Hi, everyone. Great to be here today. I'm Natasha, the Director of Community Engagement and Partnerships at Couch Health. So at Couch, we are a creative health engagement agency. Our mission is to make health human, and we want to do that by elevating the voice of patients and communities to make sure that they have a say in research to help them partner with sponsors and researchers and yeah, support health engagement and, and more inclusive research. Thank you so much. So I mentioned that we'll do a very quick introduction to precision medicine. If you know me, you know I'm fairly informal. So I invite my fellow panelists to jump in at any point to add some additional context and color to what I'm going to cover. In looking at who registered to participate in the webinar, we do see that quite a few of you have extensive backgrounds in research or, or precision medicine, so we won't get too basic, but I did want to give a little bit of color and context to the conversation today. Uh, so very quickly, precision medicines are on track to surpass non-precision medicines in the next five years. I think many of us in this industry like to think of precision medicine in the context of oncology. I was at a conference this week and heard someone say, oh, when I think about precision medicine, I usually think about cancer. But really the, the science that's, that's been used to inform the new treatments that are coming out in the oncology space can also be applied to different health conditions as well. And we're starting to see that trend more and more conditions like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, lupus, for example, uh, in Ebony's world. So it's really important to start thinking about how to make access to genetic testing acceptable and equitable in our approaches to ensure that everyone is covered. Why? Well, in 2009, there was a some work done that showed about 4% of the genetic information used in GWA or genome-wide association studies came from non-European white individuals. The work was redone in 2016 by Alice Popejoy and Stephanie Fullerton. At that point, about 20% of participants were not white, non-European. So about 81% of people who had participated in, in that work were white Europeans. And white Europeans represent 16% of the global population. So when we're, we're doing the work 
that's actually identifying the genes that are associated to different health conditions, we're only taking into account a small percentage of the population. And there are some downstream effects for that, which we're going to dig into in a little bit. But when we start to look at broader populations, we see some trends. So uh, for example, NAFLD and NASH, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, this is a growing area. We're, we're seeing that the PMPLA3 gene, for example, which is very common in Hispanic populations, specifically Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, is associated with not only development of fatty liver disease, but also swifter progression onto the continuum to NASH and, and cirrhosis. It also matters to look at ethnicity beyond, beyond racial background. Uh, so for Parkinson's disease, the work that's happening with LARC2, GBA1, for example, we're seeing specifically with LARC2, the variant is much more commonly found in individuals with Ashkenazi Jewish or North African Berber ancestry. So there's some regional variations where we're seeing these trends, genes that can make people not only more likely to develop a certain condition, but also there are treatments that are being developed for those specific genes. And we want to make sure that we're able to identify who has those variants and who needs to access it. And as I mentioned, we're seeing more and more of this work being done. So lupus, long COVID, IBD, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, high cholesterol. Uh, there's some approvals there that came out the PCSK9 can work for high cholesterol for a certain population. So it's growing and it's an important body of work. So before I jump into my questions, uh, or any of my other panelists, do you want to add anything to that conversation about the, the background, precision medicine, what we're seeing today? I think that was a great summary, Lindsay. Uh, we'll probably get into much discussion once you throw out the questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, so uh, hopefully now we've set the stage for everyone in terms of what, why are we talking about precision medicine? What is it? Uh, it's, it's using our genes to start identifying treatments uh, that might work. We're seeing with uh, long COVID, for example, some people look like they've developed something similar to lupus. Some people look like they've developed something like chronic fatigue. It's helping to accelerate the work that we're doing and identifying potential genetic causal pathways, et cetera. So when we then think about the context I share with the data and the lack of representation that we see in the panels that are being used to inform this research that's being done, it gives me pause. I think it gives probably everyone on this call pause, which is why you agreed to join me today. But I, I'm wondering if we can just do a round robin of, in your mind, what is the risk for us not getting to greater parity, greater representation, the heart of the webinar? Why does representation matter when we're talking about genetics and precision medicine? So I guess I'll just start and I'll speak for lupus. I think it's always important to share some facts about lupus. Um, we never want to assume that people understand or, or understand the intricacies of lupus. So lupus is an autoimmune disease that unfortunately is very homogeneous and that it can affect multiple different vital organs in the body, in one's body. So it can manifest in the kidneys and the lungs. We see dermatitis dermatology issues and so forth. And so for that reason alone, it's extremely important that we start to move into precision medicine and that we understand that it's gonna manifest and look differently in every person. We currently have three approved FDA drugs or three FDA approved drugs for lupus. But when you start to look at into 
who was or the participants included in these clinical trials, you see that unfortunately less than 20% represent the ethnic minorities that we see have the highest prevalence rates of lupus. And then when these prescriptions or these drugs are now being distributed in communities of colors, we unfortunately see all these side effects and symptoms that were not, you know, addressed or properly, you know, um, thought about when in the um, clinical trial phase. So I think it's extremely important when we're thinking about lupus and that how it can attack many different vital organs and it takes many different manifestations that we know that unfortunately one drug is not going to be or one treatment is not going to be um, efficacious for all. So it's extremely important that we start to model oncology when looking at precision medicine, looking at the different genetic factors, DNA strands and things of that and started to model that in lupus. Uh, Ebony said that so well. I, I'll speak to some personal experience that really drives this issue home. Uh, I'm actually in Atlanta today. This is where I grew up when I was younger. And my mom was a healthcare professional here in Atlanta. And she contracted tuberculosis in the process of care, home health care. And they did what they normally do for people, which is they give you one drug and they see if it's going to work. Then if not, they give you a second drug and a third drug. And of course, that's all about trying to figure out which one is going to have the highest degree of efficacy. And unfortunately, she died a year later because the drugs didn't work. Now, what the research later found out and reported on several years later was that you could actually perform a genotype beforehand to know which of those three drugs would have the highest level of efficacy. Right. And so that is a very specific example, particularly on the outcome based issue of this. And it could have changed the outcome for my mom. But as I play that out, Lindsay, I also think about we didn't have insurance at the time. We were in and out of hospitals that were really meant for trauma versus uh, treating a communicable disease. And I wonder, even if that was available, if we would have been in a place to be able to advocate for and to be able to speak to wanting to have that as an option. And so I think, you know, when we talk about precision medicine, we can think about it from a clinical and a, med a medical aspect of things, but we also have to think about it from a social aspect. And then, of course, my business hat thinks about this from an economic model as well, too, both in terms of what it costs to do to, to do this type of research, as well as what it's going to mean for potential potential patients in terms of their ability to pay for the options that are presented here versus kind of a one size fits all prescription. So I'll stop there. I think all great, all great things that I do want to dig into. I want to give Natasha a chance to respond um, and then we'll probably segue right right into those themes. Yeah, just to build upon really what Ebony and Dell have, have said, I think, you know, I guess what it comes down to is that I think if we don't address underrepresentation, we will increase health disparities because if we are moving towards um, precision medicine and that is only modelled on a subset of the population, it means that, and when we think globally, a minority of the global population, then the medicines and treatments that we're developing are not going to be suitable for, you know, the large majority of the global population. So I think, you know, if, if I think, yeah, it's a, if we are to boil it down to one point, there's lots of different points, but I think, you know, there's the risk that we will increase. I don't even think it's a risk, actually. We definitely will increase health disparities if we do not address underrepresentation in genetic research. And I think probably something that we can come on to is, is not just thinking about, you know, as, as Dale touched upon, there's so many other factors. It's not just the genetics, but we currently, you know, don't really have a, a 
that good an understanding really of gene environment interactions so even once we understand genetics it's then well what's the context what's the individual's context what's their social and economic context all these other factors that are going to affect then how you know genes you know um, are activated and and people's risk of disease as well so i think it's you know we have to yeah really address this as a, as an industry now can I just add something? Because um, Del, you really um, touched upon something. You talked, shared your mom's experience. So I, I rarely talk about personal stuff. I try, but you know, it definitely raised something in me. So my younger sister, she suffers from tuberous sclerosis. And so that was the first introduction we had to autoimmune disease, genetic testing, and all of these things. And so we, she has insurance, but unfortunately her insurance did not cover the genetic testing and it was way in the thousands and thousands of dollars. And so for years, she presented with all the symptoms. Now she is the first in our family to suffer from this. So she had like the butterfly rashes, she had white patches and aggression, all of these things because with tuberous sclerosis, um, it manifests as tumors throughout your body. So it can impact your eyes, your lungs, your brain. And at many times we were wondering, was this puberty that she was going through? Because she started to really act out. And it took years, honestly, years to get a diagnosis because of the time the doctors were not you know, saying to do genetic testing, they were, you know, attributing to her condition to all these other things. So in addition to, you know, as advocating, we really need to look at the social determinants that people are, are being faced with in their living and how that impacts your ability for access and care. So yeah, I just wanted to add to the Dell's point. And I think the reason that's so significant, Lindsay, right? It's kind of like we're starting with the end, but you know, the question here is definitely about the research that's needed to ensure that these, these medicines are precise for the individuals. If there's not knowledge and awareness and empowerment and advocacy uh, on the on the patient side, you, you wonder where the impetus is going to come from in order for the inputs to change and the process to change. And so I think that's the reason why these stories that we talk about are relevant. The people I know and myself included, who have enough stories like we just shared, all of a sudden now we think about a medicine, our immediate thought process is, is, is there something that's specific for me or for this person, <laughs> or is it at one size fits all? And if we, if you don't have those stories, you don't have that knowledge, you're just thinking this is the same medicine that everybody uses. So I think if we have more of that knowledge on the back end, there'll be more interest, I think, in the models that will say, let's let's ensure that we are more inclusive with the testing. And you'll get more people who will raise their hand and say, I'm willing to come in and, and, and provide a level of uh, uh, genomic participation for this because it's important for me and a family member in our community. So we've touched on a lot of really critical topics there. And I think it's a it's a good segue to what I was hoping we could jump into today. I think when we talk about barriers to clinical trials, typically they're characterized as access, trust, and awareness. And when we think about research, it's, it falls into those buckets. It, when, that's when you get a drug, right? And we're talking a little bit about the work that has to happen beforehand to make sure you're represented in the work that happens to start getting on the path to finding new treatments and to getting there. Uh, for those of you on the call who aren't aware, there have been really important findings around not even just genes, but how different genes in your body might affect your ability, your diagnosis. So there are genes, for example, that are more common in African-Americans and Hispanic individuals that maybe will make it look like your HbA1c is under control and it's not. So you could have uncontrolled diabetes, uh, but your doctor is looking 
looking at a number and they think that it's that you're under control. So it can exacerbate your existing conditions that are there. C-reactive protein levels. There are some people in populations that have a lower baseline C-reactive protein. So you might go for years with something like lupus or RA, where you're looking at your inflammation in your body as a marker for diagnosis and saying, you're just below the threshold. You're not quite at the threshold. So I don't think that's what it is, but you're actually going untreated then for something that has a treatment you could, you could get access to now. So there are things that fall into to those buckets. Then we have sites, we have access, we have um, where the genetics testing can get access, uh, how people can get access to that. You have awareness and then trust, which is something we talk about a lot. Though I do think that trust for me anyway, it kind of falls on both sides, right? Where it's, there's the assumption that people maybe don't trust the medical establishment and therefore wouldn't be interested in participating. So the ask is never made. Uh, so we can, we can get into that a little bit. In When we talk about genetics, when we talk about access to genetic testing, that home genetic testing becoming really widespread. We have a test. There are a lot of other people that have tests. Access becomes maybe less of a thing uh, in terms of the actual logistics of, can I get a test if I go onto the internet? But there are still other access issues. So when I say those three buckets, first, do you agree with the buckets? Do you think they're too narrow? Do you think there are other buckets that maybe we as an industry have just totally missed? Um, and would you, where would you put the emphasis here in terms of why aren't we, why are we missing the boat? Because I don't necessarily think it's a lack of interest in participating. I think it's a, it's how we're structuring the ask. So there's a lot of questions all at once. So kudos to whoever wants to jump in on that. Yeah. Well, let's, I'll jump in on the bucket question, which I think at the end of the day, I interpret that as in, are we identifying the most important aspects of this very complex issue? And I think we are. The The economic bucket is one that I would add to that mix. And when I say that, right, we clearly there's a cost to precision medicine and there's a cost to doing these tests. And there's a cost also with the patient side and whether the insurance is going to pay for it. And, and unfortunately, we live in a world where uh, it's not always driven by the patient needs and outcomes. Sometimes the economic models are there. And, um, you know, if to the point that Ebony made, if just running a basic genomic test to see if uh, I have the right medicine for me is going to cost me a few thousand dollars. I mean, I mean, even for some individuals, just a few hundred dollars, the answer is going to be no, <laughs> just, just give me the generic. And so I think we have to, in any discussion, talk about also what is the economics that maybe needs to change around this as well, too. Maybe too much for us to talk about on this panel, but I would just add that as an important part of the bucket or an important bucket. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the kind of, when we look at health systems, those systemic factors that, you know, are, are preventing people from being able to access, access health care and not just access, but have, you know, a good healthcare experience. And I think a lot of these factors, which then links to, you know, trust and those kind of factors. I mean, I, I agree with you, Lindsay. I think there's there's often an assumption made about, you know, trust. And I think it's become a bit of a, you know, People talk about trust without, I think, really, yeah, I guess like fully understanding like where that, where mistrust comes from. And I think it can often be used to, I guess, put it back on communities as if it's like their problem that they're not participating. And I think that's completely, you know, the, the wrong way to look at it. And it's not about, yeah, we need to, we need to understand that and address those things and, you know, rectify those things and build trust within, within those communities. But I also think when, you know, we think of, you know, uh, social cultural factors, like, you know, 
having a genetic test to, to your point, Dal, like people need to be aware of why and understand why, like what, what's the benefit? Because why would you, you know, engage in this if you don't see, you know, a benefit? And that's not to say that, you know, it has to be an individual, you know, benefit, but what's the benefit for the community? What's the benefit for, you know, wider research, not just now, but in, you know, several years. And I think often, we don't take the time to explain that and talk about that to people. We don't take the time to ask, well, what benefits would you want to see from this? Because that's also something we need to understand is, well, what is a priority to communities when people haven't even got basic access to healthcare? Why would genetic testing be a priority when they can't even access basic medication so I think we need to you know ask ourselves we need to challenge ourselves and you know ask ourselves those questions and look at how we can you know if we're wanting more people to engage what are we giving back to people and how are we you know helping their lives for what they need right now not what we think this could be used for in 10 or you know 20 years time Um, we need to have some tangible benefits for people now. Yeah, and I just want to, I completely agree. And I think, you know, Del hit it, like we have to add economics to it. And also I think just to really touch upon implicit biases, you know, a lot of times the focus is on the patient. The patient doesn't want to be involved because they don't have the education, the awareness, or that's not the priority. But a lot of times in the work that I am currently doing and have previously done, you really need to take a look at what is happening in these clinical trial settings or what is the relationship that the person has with their primary care provider. I think sometimes it really starts with preventative care and the relationship they're having when they are seeing their doctor. Um, In the beginning, I did a lot of recruitment for 10 years for trials. And unfortunately, you would see that these patients are, and I will include all of us, we're seeing our doctors, you may be fit into a 20, 30 minute time slot. And so the main goal of the provider is to increase productivity. I used to hear that so many times in these hospitals that we have to increase productivity and see 10 to 15 patients a day. And unfortunately, there are other, you know, primary conditions that take prevalence. And so doctors are not speaking to their patients, not building that compassion, not building that trust. A lot of times they, I'm not going to lie, they don't even know the patient's name. Like they were, they're looking at the EMR right before the patient comes and sits in their chair. So there's a lot of things that, you know, we can do in the beginning so that when we are introducing the concept of the ideas of clinical trials or any type of research, it's that relationship that is formed. Like I completely feel, I understand the restraints or constraints sometimes that, you know, primary care doctors have because they are really overburdened and there's a lot of stuff that they have to speak to and a lot of conditions. But I think, you know, if we really want to move towards more patient-centric or community-based care, we have to implement some practices where it's just the basic human compassion, like getting to know your person, not knowing that you, not saying you have to know all of their business, but just understanding some of the factors that are impacting why your patient is not taking their medicine or why they prefer to go to emergency rooms for care and not see, there's so many different things that, you know, can be touched upon. But I think really taking that step and the first step is preventative care can really push this needle forward. Even thinking about uh, to that point where where people are accessing care. So you have community-based health centers that are often not included in the research process, but that's where people would go, one, because it's convenient, two, it's your 
neighbor's son to have a relationship there. Um, who's, who's your provider? Um, I had a conversation with someone at D-Farm this week who said that she tried to screen for a clinical trial for diabetes that required her to see an endocrinologist three times in a four month period. But she said to see an endocrinologist, it takes six to seven months to get an appointment in the US because we have a major physician shortage right now. I think it's probably similar in the NHS. I know you have long wait times. And that she just sees the diabetes educator. So if she could, she said, listen, I'm seeing someone, I'm getting care. I'm getting continuous care from a trusted source. I talked to this person. They know my case. They know my history, but they, it didn't count. It didn't count for her because she had to go see that endocrinologist specifically, who was someone who, to your point, Ebony, sent her for a lab before the appointment, read the lab result in the EHR before she walked in the room, told her the result and left because it's less than a five minute appointment. Often here, uh, here in the U S it's usually five minutes per patient that a physician's allocated. So any re- reactions to that Dell or Natasha to what Ebony was saying about physician relationship? Yeah. I think you have an opportunity for some entity to come in and try to fill that, that role. Right. I mean, can you change the system in terms of providing greater time for patient interaction and have that time? Right. I mean, I would venture to say it's going to sound kind of pessimistic that the system is not going to allow you to make that that change. But it presents an opportunity for major healthcare organizations and payers and entities to think about how do we provide this additional support to individuals? I mean, even just using your example, Lindsay, about setting appointments, right? If it's that challenging, and but it's that significant in the process, maybe there's an entity that either already exists or that can be created or a platform or a tool that could help facilitate this process of going and looking at the appropriate locations and asking someone how far are you willing to drive for an appointment or the things and then doing this automatic searching and matching and notification when something opens up as an appointment. And I know I'm just using that as an example, but this is where I think innovation can can help address some of these issues, Uh, but it's gonna require someone to not just accept that things are the way that they are, and say, that's the way it is. And uh, so I think innovation and having people fill these voids is one way to address some of these issues. Yeah, and just to build on that, I think, I guess in parallel to that, I think it's about, or something that is important is making sure that, you know, local grassroots community organizations have the funding that they need to be able to provide that support. Because I think, you know, there are organizations that exist to support people to navigate, you know, through, through healthcare process, but processes, but, you know, the problem is there's not, there's not enough of them and they don't have the resources to be able to, you know, kind of um, necessarily deliver that at the scale that, that is needed or in the way that it's needed or, and, or it's often relying on the goodwill of people in their communities to, to do that. So I think as well as, yeah, the, what, what, what Dale was mentioning, we need to also look at, you know, how can we again equip communities to be able to do this? Because again, linking to trust, it's going to, you know, these, if it's coming from someone in the community who um, is already trusted, then I think that, yeah, is going to help with the, you know, those, those relationships building and people are going to be, you know, more on board with, with what's happening. And they also know their communities, they know what the needs are, they know what the specific challenges are, because I think we, you know, sometimes we're good at grouping people, aren't we? Which is helpful. And, you know, it's helpful in some contexts. But I think when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to healthcare and research, you know, we need to look at an individual circumstances you know, very much determine their availability and 
yeah, the opportunities that they're going to have. So, um, and people that are, you know, within those communities are kind of best place to then support people through that. I think there's an opportunity for greater awareness of lived experiences. And in my mind right now, I'm looking at something that would be an intersection between lived experiences and innovation. Right? So if you think about that, right, it's this idea of like, we can look at the system and know where it's not efficient, where it's even broken. And there's a whole lot in the system that just says that's the way it is because we don't have a solution. But if you take people's lived experiences and you take innovation, you bring those two things together, I think you could start to identify some really unique ways to address some very specific bottlenecks and inefficiencies and broken aspects of the system that don't require a total change of the system. So I know that's still conceptual in my discussion. I'm not getting into specific details, but that community, when we keep talking about community, I think one of the things we're talking about is an understanding of people's lived experiences. And then when we're talking about these deep-rooted problems that have existed for many, many years, I think innovation is a way to address those and bring those two things together. And I think some magic can happen. I'd love to shift us towards exactly that. I think everyone's starting to get on the train of how do we address this? Because we, it's, I'm, I'm famous for mixing and then totally flubbing metaphors. So bear with me. I hope this one works out. We, we as an industry know that we need to have better representation across the board. So in genetic studies, in clinical trials, et cetera. So it's this squeaky wheel but it's not telling us that it's squeaky. And then on the other side, you have the patients can't wait movement The you know, we have to move faster. We're, I think we're seeing more and more pharma companies, biotechs adopting that Silicon Valley mindset of, you know, get it out there, move fast, be agile in pharma land sites. It's still pretty slow, but it's a lot faster than it used to be. And so that's getting a lot of attention. And, and over here, everyone's been saying, Hey, I'm happy to help, but you need to give more attention. You need to be in my community. You can't just pop in and pop out when you need me for something. Like I, I want this longer relationship. So how do we start then thinking about solutions? How can we accommodate both of these? This is the long-term play, right? I need you to have a relationship with me because we've had a really complicated history in the past. We can send out links um, for people on the call who might not be aware of what we're talking about with the, the historical and, and not so historical, pretty recent um, incidences of mistreatment and uh, unethical practices and research with, with people of color. Um, so we can send information out on that. But how do we accommodate that need for trust building, which takes time? You can't build trust overnight with also this trend towards we have to move faster. We need to get things out. We're accelerating all of these, these trends and these new types of development it's without exacerbating the inequalities that already exist. Just going to so I think we need to think about the impact that the way that we do things has on people. So for example, when we think about policy data sharing, like from you know a scientific point of view, the, the more data that can be shared, the better kind of thing in terms of if we can, yeah, people can take part in genetic testing, the data can then be used not just for that research, but for other, you know, studies and things like that. So from a scientific point of view, you know, that's, that's great. But then, yeah, when we look from a community perspective and from the perspective of the public, you know, that that actually having those kind of, you know, very broad consent policies, for example, can actually mean that that puts, you know, a, a proportion of the population off and, you know, for very good reasons. And if we don't take the time to talk those things through, provide people with options so that it's not either you're all in or you don't get access to this, then yeah, we are going to, again, continue to to leave people out. So I think, and I think some of those kinds of factors are not necessarily thought about the implications of where we want to get to 
with science versus where you know we actually are now in terms of involving people and when we think about how yeah how the data is going to be used whether it's for something now or whether we're building a database which is then going to be used for you know research in you know five ten years time again for 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 the public what does that mean like from a data perspective and that again can put people off and I think you know that we're we're losing you know there's a significant proportion of the population where that is a real concern and you know a lot of those populations are probably going to be people that are already underrepresented in research. So again, by having those kinds of um, these very kind of broad policies when it comes to data sharing, just as one example, can mean that we are further yeah, exacerbating you know, the inequalities. So I think we need to not think of these things as separate, but actually think about how does the way we do things, what is the impact for different groups and actually be specific about that and then you know take steps to then you know address some of those issues yeah I think just to add to that I think you know we have to recognize we're dealing with people you know these are human beings the same way you know things pop up in our lives every time and we're not able to go to a doctor's appointment or go to a meeting we have to recognize that we are all people and we have to treat others as such. I think the issue is that we're not being intentional in our approaches. It's not about how fast or slow, but the intentionality and the thought that is given to it. You know, one, and it's not a novel concept, we have been doing this in translational research, is community-based participatory research. And that the person not the patient, but the person is seen as an active participant from inception of the protocol all the way down to the data analysis. And I think having that voice, having that expertise throughout you know, our programs and initiatives really will bolster innovation, creativity, and all these things that we hope to capture within the healthcare. You know, a lot of times with our communities, they're not being approached until a protocol is fully developed, until it's time to recruit the first participant. And then you're faced with the conundrum as to why aren't people jumping at this idea to participate with me? It's because you never gave the time to even introduce the concept or speak to them as to if this is a priority in the community. And this is something that we are really taking an intentional approach at Lupus Research Alliance and Lupus Therapeutics in the development of project change. And that the participant or the person living with lupus is just as valued as the researcher, just as valued as the industry sponsor, and that their expertise is not even less, is not less than because lived experience is extremely important when we're thinking about the development of programs, the development of therapeutic treatments to help their conditions. Or so I think, you know, taking an approach that we have to be intentional in what we do is extremely important. Additionally, a lot of times we're doing this work in siloed. There's no cross communication or collaboration. I'll speak specifically to lupus and that many times, you know, we have this novel drug or we have this novel program, but many times if you look back 10, even 15 years ago, these are not novel ideas. But unfortunately, once that team or that person leaves, then those ideas and those programs are ended until it's, you know, someone dreams it up 10 years later. So I think it's really important to have this cross collaboration as well as value the lived person experience just as much as we're valuing the researcher or the PI who went to an academic medical institution. 
Yeah, I think it would be really interesting for this industry to take this lived experience approach. And before anything it's done uh, in terms of this process, it has a lived experience test to it, right? Like, like it has this test of, did you involve someone who is actually going to be going through this process in, in the development of the process? And even if you did not, did you then test it significantly out on people who are going to be using it and evaluate the effectiveness. And it's amazing. I mean, we we had a project where we had a company come to us that was interested in, in providing genetic testing to certain groups that have been underrepresented. And we, we picked up the, the, the project with them. And one of the earliest things they were looking for is that you have to show that you had a primary care physician and you had to list their name and their address and their telephone number before you move forward. And we were able to access and engage many people who raised their hand and said, yes, I'd be interested in doing this, you know, from an awareness standpoint. But as soon as they went into the process, it was like, uh, this is not my life where I have a primary care physician <laughs> that I can just call. And so, you know, from working with the individual, the company, we were able to kind of talk to them about how they could modify where that fits in the process and what other options, but still meeting compliance and regulatory compliance but change it to increase the, the conversion rate and the pastor rate. But if we were looking like, was this not actually tested? The process tested on someone before all of a sudden you rolled out this massive program. So I think we have something as we're trying to figure out what is, what is a potential solution set instead of just talking about the problem. I would like to advocate based upon what you're hearing here that this industry can think about a lived experience participatory part that that someone in individuals with lived experience help develop the process, but also a lived experience in terms of the actual application. Does it, does it hinder what we're trying to do? I think if the industry took that approach, you'd see a lot of things change. And I, I think sometimes when we talk, I just want to be clear, sometimes when we talk about diversity, it can be code for what we want, like different races involved in the research. But um, it can also be things like geographic location, where it, the vast majority of Americans live very far from doctor <laughs> research center, for sure. Uh, it's really on the coasts uh, where you get a lot of those uh, academic with, with some with you know, some people in in the middle, um, academic research uh, centers where a lot of this work is happening. So we've mentioned before the community-based healthcare centers. We've talked a little bit about, you know, decentralized clinical trials. There may or may not be some benefits there. I think that, you know, there are some benefits in terms of access for um, geographic diversity, but there are some questions still about whether people want to be going into a research center um, and seeing a doctor instead of having someone come into their house or or shipping a box. Um, So when we think about that logistics a bit, and I, I'm starting to get into the Q&A bit. So this question came, came from uh, Kimberly. So how can we start considering some of these factors in ensuring that uh, research is actually accessible to people uh, when we're planning studies? And it can, it can go beyond the, the community bit, you know, thinking about geographic, uh, racial, ethnic background, age, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think to Dale's point, it starts with work with people to design the research and design the trials because then they will soon tell you what will not work or what where you might have to provide additional support or, you know, and again, I think to Ebony's point, we need to recognize individuals. Not everyone is, you know, gonna need people are gonna need different things in order to enable them to take part. So how can we, yeah, how can we provide that as part of the trial? So I think working with people to design the trial, getting input at an early stage in the trial 
planning, not we've got everything sorted, the protocol signed off. Let's just check and see if there's anything that, you know, is going to cause an issue here. Find out there is, oh, we can't change it this time, but we'll change it next time. Like we just need to get away from that and move towards, you know, involving people in the earlier stages of development. And, you know, often there are so many like practical, it's often the practical factors that come up of, oh yeah, how am I going to get there? How often do I need to, you know, how many visits are involved? You know, now we've got, you know, particularly much more options. People don't always have to go somewhere, you know, we can send things out in the post and, you know, that, that makes, you know, research much, much more accessible. Having said that, there are some people who, you know, will want to be there in person. So I think, you know, we need to be careful, you know, kind of the decentralized trials approach isn't, you know, that's it, it's done. Research is now accessible for everyone. Definitely not. When we look at digital as well, you know, we've still got, you know, significant numbers of populations that don't have, you know, access to to digital aspects and for trials. So I think, yeah, that's something which we need to look at as well. But again, I think ultimately, if you work with people, you know, patients, patient organisations, community groups, and get them in as experts in the clinical trial process, then, you know, that's going to mean it's not to say that we can solve all of, you know, those, these problems, but it certainly means that we have an awareness of them. And we can then, you know, advertise the trial accordingly and be upfront about here's what's required. Because I think that's something which is an issue as well. Like, you know, to, to, to Dell's example, great, we're on board, but then actually, we'll know this, the way that it's set up means that actually we can't be involved in this. I think she said it so well and made such a great point. Ebony and I don't want to follow her. We just want to say exactly what Natasha said. <laughs> I want to point out, I recognize her a little bit um, beyond what we said. If you all have a few minutes, we have a few more questions to work through. People need to jump off again. We'll we'll record this. Um, we'll be sending it out. There is a question that's sort of a, a follow on to that, which was about how do we get people excited in research? And I think obviously involving people is important, critical to getting them engaged There is also this trend that we're seeing specifically in genetic research where researchers are saying, are asking people for their, for their information, but then maybe, uh, and they have a discovery, so they find a gene, but they're maybe not sharing back with the individuals if they have that gene or not. Um, And I am curious about your reaction to that. I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious about your reaction to that and how to manage those types of conversation in the community for anyone who's on the line who might be involved with that type of engagement. Well, I think so earlier this week, Google had its uh, health equity conference, which really spoke to a lot of these themes and it was really great. And one of the conversations was around like sharing the results, even if it's statistically significant, even if the trial stops or whatever, sharing the results with the community. And I think it's really important and even taking a step back sharing what research is. A lot of times we're using clinical trials, DCT, all of these different terms, but a lot of people are not just speaking about underrepresented communities. They don't understand the importance or impact. You think about like all of the advertisement and all the thing that wants into t- getting a COVID vaccine. And I think if we take some of those fundamental, you know, advertisements and different ways that we wanted to put the information out and apply that to clinical trials research more broadly, then we're starting to engage different communities. I think that is not that they don't want to join research, but, you know, there's just that understanding 
lack of understanding of why is it important for me? It may not benefit me, but it can benefit my great, great grandchild later down the year or down the line. So I think it's important just having, you know, regular conversations with people and that can bolster engagement and excitement. Many times I'm having these conversations within my own family. You know, I've been in the space for now 14 years and they still don't understand what I do. And they're like, what exactly are you doing? Like, I know you're not a doctor. I know you're not a nurse, but you're in the healthcare system. (laughs) Cracks me up. So I think it's just like taking a step back and decentralizing our conversations and, and just really hitting key points and having those conversations. And I really, I asking companies, farm, all like really taking that engagement and being intentional in it and starting to have these conversations, I think that can bolster um, engagement across the board. I think Ebony did the, the comprehensive answer. First of all, same situation. No one understands what I do for a living, but also I think uh, when I said I have my own opinion on this, I think that this is akin to when people don't find out the results of a clinical trial. So they've given all this time and energy to something. You're sharing something very personal, which is your DNA. And then it's, oh, we made this discovery. Thank you. You don't necessarily benefit from it on a personal level. Um, but but it, I think sometimes those practices feed them the assumption that this company is going to come in. They're going to take my information. They're going to use it to make billions of dollars and I'm not going to get anything from it. So for me, I think that's a very tricky setup and I understand there are reasons for it, but we need to be really clear as to why in the communication and have other benefits that are significant, whether that's at a community level or just making a really good effort to bring that information back and have a dialogue with, uh, with the community. There are a lot of very good questions that have come in I don't think we're going to have time to tackle them all. There are some that I can answer because it's more logistical questions about the U.S. healthcare system. There was a very good point made about talking about diversity coming in with race and ethnicity. I think one thing to clarify is that ancestry does influence your genes. So we could, when we talk about diversity, when we're talking about genetics, your ancestry does influence your actual genes. So there is an association to certain uh, communities from an ancestral perspective Mm -hmm. where genes are more common. So we can't say that there are no genetic differences between races and ethnicities because I have things that are particular to my Norwegian heritage, for example. Um, So so don't make the assumption that there wouldn't be differences in communities. It's just, it's not because of the color of your skin. It's because of where you've you've come from and who you've come from Um, and that there are also social determinants uh, and, and we need to make sure that we don't obscure social determinants Obviously, we talk about gene-environment interactions all the time, so we need to make sure that we don't obscure the social determinants, and I think that's a very good point for that, but I, I do want to clarify that there are uh, there are differences by ancestry for can this I add, Can I yes, add something please. into that, Lindsay, and just specifically for lupus? So there was a cohort study that was done in the 1990s, and um, it was with the University of Alabama and a few other institutions where they wanted to look at ancestry specifically related to, uh, related to lupus severity and progression. And it was found that in addition to the social determinants of health, those uh, participants who had ancestry related to African, Asian, or Native American, unfortunately, they had more severity or the progression of lupus. So we saw end-stage renal disease and other more severe progression, uh, severe conditions related to the ancestry. So yes, we have to understand that social determinants of health definitely has an impact on the severity of disease 
diseases, but there are also ancestry links and people who come from this, these genetic backgrounds that are more prone to developing the disease as well as the severity of the disease. Similar to PMPLA3 with uh, fatty liver. So in our very quick round robin, I want to cede the floor to the panelists. Uh, you've all been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your insight and for sharing sharing this. If we didn't get to your question, we'll, we'll address it after. Closing thoughts. Uh, one suggestion to anyone listening who's running studies on how to, to move the needle with their work. I would just say, keep people in mind that you're doing it for people and not robots and that we're not apps um, and that, you know, keeping people at the forefront and understanding that, you know, people, everyone comes from different backgrounds, different experiences, but really elevating the condition you are testing, really elevating the people who are dealing with that everyday condition because they can provide insights that unfortunately others cannot. Um, so we should always keep them in the mind in any type of therapeutic development initiative or program. And I will piggyback off of what Ebony said and double down on something I said earlier, which that lived experience that comes from involving people. There's an opportunity to take that lived experience and to combine it with innovation. And, it, and when I use the word innovation, I'm sometimes just talking about a, a new process or a different process versus some cool technology. But there's so much, this is the way we've always done it in the industry. <laughs> and, and we all know the definition of insanity, I think sometimes we see that play out, which is wanting to have more representation, wanting to have more inclusiveness, but doing the same processes over and over again and then scratching your head when you don't get that. So I think lived experiences with some level of innovation is what we need to adopt in order to change the outcome. Yeah. And I think following on from that, that's going to require investment. And, you know, I think companies need to invest in this work. If we, you know, if you're really serious about addressing underrepresentation, then yeah, make the investment now and think long-term. Don't think, you know, short-term, but actually think about long-term. Invest in those, you know, partnerships, building that trust, giving back to the community, because it will take time. We know, you know, that, that will take time to build those relationships, but it will mean that we're all much better off in the years to come. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you all again so much for your time. Thank you to everyone who is listening. And again, we'll work to address the other questions that have come in uh, during the course of the conversation. Thank you again. Have a really wonderful rest of your day, whatever time zone you're in, whether you're just starting or you're about to end. 